today's topic is um, how do we get the New Testament canon? I'm going to be sharing my screen for the majority of the time. So unfortunately, you people won't be seeing that Helene and Troy. Um, so I also promised you some other topics and I'm to save time, we will cover them today, but I'm going to squish them super short. Um, and so it's your responsibility to go do your own research if you really are really, really into those side topics. So the reason that this is one of maybe the most important topics, not for us, but for skeptics, is because there's this assumption that Christianity has gone around and they've picked and chosen which books they like and which they don't. And if they don't like it, they throw it out. And if they like it, they keep it. And so they give this um, idea that it was a very casual process and very biased. And that's actually not the case. Um, does anyone have an idea of how the New Testament was formed? Like you ever heard at least a, a theory? Anyone um, read the Da Vinci Code or watched the movie? <laughs> so, a long time ago. Sorry, a, a long, long time ago. So I don't actually remember it, except that I was like disgusted by it at the end because uh, it was heretical and stupid. But I actually only realized something. Um, I kind of picked it up about a year ago, but I really realized that while I was preparing for this, um, I actually, when I went to Bible school at my church back in South Africa, they taught me a lie that most of the secular community believes. And it comes from that book. And in that book, it says that there was a council of Nicene um, that got together hundreds of years later and they had all the books and they sat together and they said, this one, yes, no, discuss it, throw it out or keep it, right? And I was actually taught that in my Bible school from my church. I mean, it was presented better, like, you know, they took it seriously and they had criteria. And so it was a little bit better than the movie or the book, but um, it's actually not true. It's actually not how it happened. So, um, and while I was actually looking for videos to show you guys, I actually um, saw comments by some people that that's the only version they've ever heard, even as Christians. So I'm really glad that you're that you're going to get some some facts today. Okay, um, so there are. Oh, let me do this first. Sorry. Like I said, this is going to be weird because I didn't practice. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to use the word canon a lot. So I just wanted to define it in case someone doesn't know. So it's from the Greek word canon, <laughs> which means rule or standard. But now when we use the word, it, it means a collection of the Christian scriptures. So there are three main Christian beliefs that existed in the first century, 
which led to a natural development of canon, right? So we're gonna go from the viewpoint that this wasn't something that once upon a time, hundreds of years later, people got together like, oh, we need a group of scriptures um, and let's decide on it. It was actually a very natural process that happened and it happened already starting in the first century. So right after Jesus died. If at any point you're like, oh my word, I'm so lost. This is so boring. Just like put up your hand, Helene and Troy, you'll have to shout because I can't see you. Okay. So the first one is the eschatological nature of the, of early Christianity. And that basically means um, that word kind of today means uh, looking forward to the end time. So eschatology is the study of end time stuff. But in this sense, it meant that the Jews in the first century, they had a very heightened um, expectation of the coming promises of God. They, for, for whatever reason, in that century, they were expecting the Messiah to come soon. They had a feeling like it was going to come, um, like that he was going to come. They, um, even though they were in Israel, so they weren't in exile physically, there was a sense that they still felt that they were in exile spiritually because the Romans were ruling over Israel. And for whatever reason, they really felt in that time that something was going to happen to free them and it would be the coming messianic age. Um, we know this from the New Testament itself, right? So um, John the Baptist came along and he started proclaiming that he's making the way for that Messiah who's coming, all right? You have people who then question and ask, is John the Messiah, right? And then you had Jesus come along. And what were the questions people were asking? You know, are you the prophet? Now, the prophet was the person who was going to come and teach them things about God. Essentially, the Messiah, the one person, right? Are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Like, they asked questions like that because they believed it was coming really, really soon. Okay. Um, Then the uh, next point is they also didn't view the Old Testament as complete, right? So they were, and this goes back to, they were looking to the end of the age, right? So they, when they took their Old Testament scriptures, they didn't think of it as a closed canon, at least in the first century. Now Jews consider it closed. But back then, for them, it was incomplete. They were waiting for something more to finish the story. We can see this by the fact that the um, the way the Old Testament still to this day in Jewish circles is structured is that it ends in the book of Chronicles, <clears throat> which ours isn't like that. We've changed the order because ours is more a chronological sequence. <coughs> so um, the reason they put Chronicles at the end is because it set the stage for a coming Davidic reign, right? It spoke a lot about David and his time from the perspective of the priests. And it, it left this feeling at the end of the Old Testament that one day a new king will come and he will reign over Israel and there'll be a time of peace and prosperity and no, no one will oppress us any longer. So they put that at the end because they're waiting. What's the rest of the story? They were expecting 
more books to be added, right? Um, and uh, another thing that I'll put with the previous point <clears throat> is the scriptures that were read in synagogues super often in the first century were all pertaining to messianic prophecy. I mean, even when Jesus got up, right? He Remember, he didn't pick a scroll. He got handed a scroll. And what was it about? The Messiah was coming, right? And then he said, today it's been fulfilled in your midst. So they were expecting this, all right? Now, if you were a Jewish Christian, you believe that all of this had now happened in the life of Jesus. So this time period that you were expecting to come about, the entire culmination of the story of the Old Testament happened in the life of Jesus, okay? So because of that, that leads us to uh, three implications from that eschatological belief. The first one is that if they believed it was incomplete and that the story was completed in Jesus, then naturally they'd want to write the end of that story. They want to complete what we call the Old Testament. It wasn't supposed to be two separate things. It was supposed to be one complete book, right? So they wanted to put it together. They wanted to have a complete story. And uh, we see this again with how they structured the New Testament. The first book that they picked was the book of Matthew. And I mentioned this, uh, I think, last week with the genealogies. And I'm, I, I unfortunately said it a bit wrong. I said the genealogy was right at the end of Chronicles and at the beginning of Matthew. And so they linked. That was, I was a little bit off. The, um, they both have, uh, why can't I say this word? Chronologies? Am I saying it right? <laughs> Guys, one off hours sleep. <laughs> They both have chronologies at the beginning of the books. And so they put those two books next to each other because they're saying, here's the last book of the Old Testament alluding to a coming Davidic king. Boom. Here's the first book of the New Testament starting off with a uh, <laughs> chronology. I, I really feel like I'm saying it wrong. Um, of Again, the Davidic line showing you that Jesus is that coming king. And then here's the rest of his story, okay? The second implication is that the Old Testament reveals a pattern for how God reveals his word, okay? Um, so usually God reveals a set of new word revelation after any major redemptive events. He did this consistently throughout the Old Testament. Something major would happen, and then he would reveal more written knowledge through a prophet or a priest, etc. Okay, so redemption follows revelation. The most obvious example of this is Egypt. So the um, Israelite people were redeemed from Egypt, and one of the first thing that happens was there was revelation of God's word on Mount Sinai. God gave Moses a written Ten Commandments. And then it got even more, right, after that. But redemption always is followed by revelation of God's word. Okay? So um, early Christians saw what Jesus did for us as the full, final, ultimate, redemptive activity of God. Okay? Therefore, revelation must follow right? Because this wasn't just 
to, to the early Christians, Jesus wasn't just a prophet, right? He was the prophet. Um, he wasn't just a giver of the law. He was the embodiment of the law. He was not just a king like David, but the king of David. Um, not just one who worships um, at the temple, but one who is greater than the temple. So he was this huge redeemer. And if all the other redemptive acts in history came with huge revelation and the bigger the redemptive act the more revelation how much more so the coming of the messiah right who redeemed israel so there's a quote here by david mead that says um a new israel would require new scripture also i forgot to say this if you're listening online later you may want to go watch the youtube video because there's a lot of stuff on the screen and there will be pictures later so you need to watch the video instead all right um then the third implication is that the Old Testament refers um, to the age, when it refers to the age of redemption, it states that God will deliver a new divine message. So all the Jews were looking forward to this time that was coming, and they knew that God had said, and I quoted here in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this and this is the prophet. In this verse is how the, the Jewish people got to believe in someone called the prophet, right? The one, not a one, the one. And so they knew when the prophet came, he would give them divine revelation of God, right? So they're expecting that to come. Jesus is now the one who came during the age of redemption. He's the prophet. And so they're expecting him to deliver a divine message. Okay. So all those things put together, for coming from the eschatological nature of the early church is one of the reasons, one of the three main reasons why we would have expected them to expect a new group of writings to be written and collected. That's the first reason, okay? The second reason is that first century Jews were covenantal, okay? Um, and they started to view Jesus in light of God's covenantal promises, okay? Specifically a new covenant. So um, the, the Last Supper, it wasn't just a supper. It was a covenantal meal, which was a common thing that happened in ancient cultures, you signed a covenant with someone, made a covenant with someone, and then you had a meal with them, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever whole, heard of a salt covenant, but it's essentially you have a meal together. Once you've eaten the meal, you've, you make a covenant with someone. That's why, um, like in the New Testament, Paul says, uh, with certain people, you don't even eat with them. Because in their culture, that's you are in covenant with people who you eat with. You're sharing a table with them. Lots of pictures in scripture of don't share a table with certain kinds of people because mm -hmm. from their point of view, that was a covenant. Okay. So they had a very covenantal point of view. Jesus affirmed this like, by saying in Luke 22, 20, um, likewise, uh, he also took the cup off the supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So Jesus is affirming, yes, there's a new covenant that's coming. Okay. Um, we also know that there's a new covenant because 
Paul and the other apostles refer to themselves as ministers of a new covenant. Um, And so that leads us to two implications. Um, Throughout history, there's always been in the, especially in the Middle East, a close connection between covenant and written texts. So the Old Testament was born into a covenantal world, specifically the Old Testament now. That's just how it was done. So when you made a treaty with someone, it wasn't just a verbal thing that you did. You made it verbally, but then immediately what followed was it was written down, it was handed over, and then it was read publicly in places. This was something that was done not only with Jewish people, but with surrounding cultures all in that area. That was just how it was. And so um, the, the Old Testament was accompanied by written text, right? So when God gave a covenant, God mimicked a human principle in that time where he's like, okay, I'm giving you this promise, this treaty, this covenant, and I'm solidifying it with a written text and you should read it publicly, right? That's why the reading of the word has always been a public thing, okay? And so the written part of the the text and and the covenant itself were so closely related that they would use the words interchangeably. Um, so if you say, uh, I think I wrote it down somewhere. Um, oh, so like the law was referred to as the book of the covenant. So those things were the same thing. If we speak about the covenant or we speak about the law, it's all referring to the written down thing because that law contains the covenantal promises within it, right? Um, So therefore, because these early Christians were used to this covenant thinking, uh, they would have expected a new covenant to come with new texts. They knew a new covenant was coming because it was promised in the Old Testament that a new covenant would come. Jesus confirms that there is a new covenant. One example was that scripture that I read, right? The apostles confirmed that there's a new covenant because they say there's ministers of it. So anyone in that century would have gone, hmm, okay, new covenant means there has to be new written documents that come with it. It was just the expectation. Um, this, the second implication is that the New Testament writings themselves were constructed in the format of covenantal documents. So covenantal documents have curses So example is uh, Deuteronomy 12. I don't know if I wrote it down, but um, there's a a curse about uh, if you add or remove anything from this book, bad things will happen. The same type of curse is repeated in Revelations 22. If you add anything to this book, um, all the curses in this book will be added to you. If you remove anything from this book, your name will be removed from the Lamb's Book of Life. So Covenants and written documents come with covenantal curses. Um, They were expected to be read publicly. That was part of what a covenantal document was. And so the New Testament writings were written in a fashion where they could be read publicly and they were read publicly. And then again, Paul identifies himself and others as ministers of this new covenant. And you can see that within the writings. Um, And then the early church fathers themselves 
reference these writings as the new covenant. So when they're writing in the first 100, 200 years, they themselves keep referring to these books as the new covenant, the writings themselves as the new covenant. Okay. Um, just for interest sake, New Testament is just the Latin version of covenant. So that's why, why we have a testament, but covenant is it's interchangeable. Um, so in conclusion, a new covenant demanded new writings. That's just how it was. Okay, so they expected something to be happening in their times. They were covenantal people. And the last one is they um, had certain beliefs regarding the apostles. And, and that was that they believed that they were Christ's representatives on earth. There was mouthpiece, they spoke for Jesus. It was like hearing Jesus speak. That's how much they, um, they trusted his words. which then also led to two implications. If these apostles who were supposed to be speaking God's words wrote down their words, what would that imply? Just by logic, right? If Cassandra by nature is speaking the words of God and then she writes those words down, what does that make the document? Okay. Um, the second thing is the apostles made it clear that there was no distinction between their written word and their oral word. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 says, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistles, which is a letter. So whether they made it clear that whether we're speaking it to you or whether we're writing it down and sending it to you, this is the same. It's the same authority. Okay. So all in all, they didn't have to decide to have a written New Testament. It was an inherent idea just by the fact that they were apostles. If apostles spoke for God and they wrote down things automatically, they didn't even have to think about it. They're like, this is also automatically the word of God. Okay, so in summary, three main reasons why the Christians in the first century would have naturally expected and developed and accepted New Testament, New Covenant documents and writings is because they were in a season where the Jewish people in general were expecting the culmination of a new messianic age. Um, they were covenantal people and all new covenants demand new documents. And they believed that the apostles spoke the words of God. The apostles themselves say there's no difference between their writing and their speaking. Therefore, everything they wrote must be the word of God, which would be added onto the Old Testament, which was already the word of God. Does that make sense so far? Okay, and the reason we're talking about this is because we're trying to prove that this wasn't 500 years later, people got worried that Christianity was dying out. And so they decided, oh, let's quickly pick some books that sound good. This was an expectation from the beginning that there would be more writings, okay? Um, so short section on why not just stick to oral tradition, right? Um, I mean, we could have all the stuff just spoken out. Why does it need to be written down? Um, well, the first point, and this is the most important point, the apostles, apostles entered a world where if God spoke, it was expected to be written down. Examples of this are uh, Exodus 17, 14. Write this for a memorial in the book. 
Isaiah 30 verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll. Jeremiah 32, 30 verse 2. Uh, write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. Habakkuk 2 verse 2. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets. Revelation 1 verse 19. <clears throat> write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So they're used to a tradition of when God speaks, you write it down. Okay. Um, the second point of why it wouldn't just be an oral tradition is the practical needs of a global mission. They wanted to spread Christianity everywhere. And we're talking about the New Testament church, right? So Christianity is still a new religion. They only have so many people. And so Paul can't be everywhere. Peter can't be everywhere. So it would make sense to write down what they were saying. Or if they wrote down something to make copies of it and consider this authoritative and spread that out. To write something down was better. It could be preserved longer. It could be spread further. And it allowed for translation attempts, right? Because you had a written document in Hebrew or Greek next to you. And then you could go, okay, well, I'm going to Ethiopia. So I'll write it in, I think they spoke uh, Coptic or whatever. So you would have something written so you can translate it. It just helped promote a global mission. And then the last one is pretty obvious. The apostles were dying. Right. At some point, they were going to stop speaking and then we needed a record of the things they said, which were God's words. <clears throat> so in conclusion of that section, which is hopefully if you were bored, that's the most boring part of it. Uh, the early Christians were expecting the New Testament canon to emerge. So this is the important key point here. It was not their job to create scripture, but to identify it. So Christians didn't choose the books. Christians didn't create the books. Christians identified the books. And that is why um, there was some debate for, you know, a good amount of time over some books because they were trying to identify which ones were scripture. And there were a few that, you know, might not have been so clear at first. And so they had to talk about it debate about it, you come up with criteria, ask themselves, do these books meet criteria for what we already consider to be scriptural, right? So they didn't pick it or create it or choose it, they identified it. And that's an important thing that you have to make skeptics understand because they will say that people chose, people created. It's not that. The word of God already existed. They just had to pick it out from amongst the rubbish that other people were writing at that point. Okay. Um, so we're going to get to the fun part. This is a small section first. So what led to the need to distinguish officially now, which books were scripture as well as to collect and compile them. So there was a general understanding of, we accept that as scripture. Uh, we accept that as scripture, but no one wrote it down. No one said specifically with the intention of proving something was scripture. These are the things we define as the word of God. And no one had collected the entirety of the New Testament that we have today into one um, book, essentially, right? So what led them to get to that point where they're like, okay, we need to start doing this. Um, 
everything I've already said leads to that. It's part of it, right? Them expecting it to be written down, them wanting to finish the story, apostles dying off. Those are all points that fit in this section as well. Um, a second point would be the prophetic nature of the books. If something is prophecy and it's leading to a future event, that, that's something you want to write down, right? You want to keep a record of it. So when it comes true, it can be like, oh, there it is, you know? Um, so therefore, the prophetic writings are intrinsically valuable and worth um, preservation. So that's not just the book of Revelation. Jesus mentioned prophecy throughout the Gospels as well, right? There's certain things that Paul said that I would even venture to say is prophecy because when he speaks about, you know, the resurrection and the end, where is he getting that from? I don't know. Like if that was something God revealed to him personally, it's a form of prophecy, right? So there are prophecy within the New Testament documents that we want to preserve. Uh, the next one is the church's need for authoritative scripture. So the demand for books that conform to apostolic teaching to be read in churches required a selection process. So more and more churches were formed everywhere and they needed to know which things should be, be reading in churches. And so they had to then say, okay, out of all the things floating around, these are ones that conform to apostolic teachings. These are the ones that you can uh, read from. This was a big one, heretical challenges. There came a point where cults and factions started to break off and they started to say things that were unscriptural. They started to write their own gospels, um, their own canons. Um, the, there was a um, heretic called Marcion in uh, 140 AD. And he, um, he had some really weird views of scripture and he claimed to be a Christian, but he didn't really believe that the goal, God of the Old Testament was the same as the God of the New Testament. And so he rejected the whole Old Testament and he then took um, the book of Luke, uh, the gospel of Luke and 10 of Paul's letters. He edited them and then he compiled them into one book. And he said, this is scripture, right? And I only had four and a half hours sleep. So forgive me if I'm remembering this wrong. I believe he was the first person to compile like an entire section of writings and say, this is it. It's closed. This is fixed, right? There were uh, collections of letters floating around together, like Paul's letters were collected and sometimes handed out together. The gospels were often found together, maybe not all four, sometimes all four, sometimes two together. So it's not like no one had ever put two books together, but this was, if I remember correctly, the first person who collected a bunch of them together and said, this is it, there are no more, right? This is the word of God alone. And so, Stuff like that led the church to get to a point where they're like, we need to get to a point where we officially cut things off and say, okay, this is the word of God, nothing else. This is a list of things that we trust and anything that's not in these lists is not to be trusted, okay? Um, missionary outreach. There's a lot of good stuff floating around because not everything that's not scripture is bad, right? But there's some stuff that's really bad, heresy, but there's other stuff that's, it's okay, but it's not the word of God, right? So 
And there's nothing wrong with people copying those and reading those things. Just like we have Christian books today, right? No one says, oh, you shouldn't read any Christian books just because it's not the word of God. No, of course you can read them. Just know that it's not the word of God, right? And so they copied stuff like that. They read them in churches. And, but now when you're thinking about missionary outreach, right? Do you want to, if, if, if you're going to China to be a missionary, okay? And imagine yourself back in that century, mixed with our century, otherwise my example doesn't work. <laughs> but would you, would you um, want to translate um, uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress into Chinese? Like, is that important enough for you to decide, okay, we need to translate this into Chinese? Or are you gonna translate the book of um, Mark? like the gospel of Mark. So they had to decide, okay, we have a global mission. We can't keep copying everything, translating everything into every language. So what things are the word of God? These are the things we're gonna spread around actively and the things we will translate into other languages, etc. right? Not that the other things are bad necessarily, but we need to define what is God's word. And then the last one is um, persecution. Um, so if you're going to die for a belief, you want to make sure you're dying for something that's worth dying for, right? So no one's going to die for, um, what's that famous book by Rick Warren? Life, pur Purpose for German Life, I think. Oh. Yeah. Um, no one's going to die on the cross for that book, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it might be a good book. I haven't read it yet. I've heard it's good. Um, but no one's going to die for it, right? So you need to determine what things are worth dying for. Not only that, um, in the, I think it was 300s, I didn't write it down, but there came a time in early Christianity where there was an emperor who ordered all sacred Christian, Christian texts to be burned. And so the church naturally had to decide which ones do we need to save, right? Like, I'd really love to save Pilgrim's Progress and Rick Warren's book and stuff. But if I have to save something from burning, I'm going to pick the things that are the word of God over other documents, right? Um, and then if I'm found with those documents, I get murdered. So do I want to get murdered over Pilgrim's Progress? No. But I mean, the Gospel of Luke, maybe. You know what I'm saying? So that these are the things that led them to say, okay, we need to officially distinguish what is scripture not just loosely but officially and we need to start considering how we're going to collect and compile them into one work um so this then led to they had to define what's criteria what are we looking for when we look at a book or a writing or a letter to determine whether or not we consider this the word of god okay the first one is apostolicity so that means direct or indirect association with the work of an apostle, okay? So uh, <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, written by Matthew, who was an apostle, so it meets that criteria. Um, the Gospel of Luke wasn't written by an apostle, but it was written by someone who was in direct contact with an apostle. We know that from the book of Acts that Luke and Paul were together all the time, and essentially the Gospel of Luke is almost like Paul's gospel. It's got other eyewitness accounts in it, but essentially it's a lot of Paul, right? Um, 
Second criteria is um, orthodoxy, which is whether a given writing conformed to the church's current rule of faith. So did it conform to apostolic teaching? And remember, these are things they started thinking about super early on, right? So the moment these things started circulating, many of the apostles were still alive and teaching in churches. So Christianity is new and fresh. And although already some people are perverting it, there's a general understanding of this is the truth, right? Eyewitness accounts and all that stuff. So churches conform to a certain tradition and law and rules, and the apostles enforce that, right? So when they found a new writing, they asked themselves, does this conform to the teachings we already know to be true? And they were doing this within early Christianity. It's different if we did it today, right? If we took a document today and says, hmm, does this conform to the rule of the church? We'd probably reject a lot of stuff because a lot of churches don't teach the stuff that's in those books anymore, right? And so that criteria in modern times wouldn't be applicable, but it was back then because the church was fresh and new and apostles were still alive to correct things. The third one is antiquity. So how old was it? Anything written after the apostles died was kind of thrown away, right? We wanted stuff that was as early as possible, written within the time of the apostles, close to Jesus, that was important. Anything later, it might be great to read, but it's not the word of God, right? And then the last one is um, ecclesiastical usage. Was that document already being used in multiple churches across the known world at that point? Um, <clears throat> and here's the thing. You couldn't just meet one of these criteria. You generally had to the more you met, the more um, secure you were in being identified as a scriptural document. But um, you didn't have to satisfy all four, but typically one probably wouldn't be enough. An old document by itself doesn't mean anything. Something read in one church in Egypt doesn't make it scripture, right? Something that is orthodox, like I could write something today that's super orthodox, like it conforms exactly to the Bible doesn't make it scripture because that criteria alone isn't good enough. Um, and also, um, just because it's apostolic doesn't make it scripture on its own because one, and this is probably the main point, is somebody could just paste the title of an apostle on a document, right? Someone could just say, this is the gospel of Philip. And you can't just go, oh, Philip was an apostle. Okay, that's the word of God. Does it meet the other criteria? Like when was it written? Because if it was written in 300 AD, definitely wasn't Philip Philip, right? So you take all these things together and then they would look at each document and make decisions. <clears throat> okay, so when were the writings that we have in the New Testament first recognized officially as scripture? And these are some cool things that I never personally knew um, until I did my theology course, and this book that I told you is awesome, The Lion um, and the Lamb. It goes into a lot of detail of that stuff, but it's really interesting. So the first way, uh, the first time frame that we know that scripture was recognized as scripture was actually during the apostolic era. So while the apostles were still alive and while more letters and gospels were still being written, and how we know that is that 
scripture itself tells us this. Um, in 1 Timothy 5.18, it says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So he starts off by saying, The scripture says, so everything following that is considered scripture, correct? And then he makes two references. The first one is from Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, which is obvious. I mean, it's Old Testament. Of course, it was scripture. But the interesting thing is the second part is from Luke 10, verse 3. We're talking about Paul writing a letter referring to something Luke wrote and saying that it's scripture. And not only scripture, but he's putting it at the same level as the Old Testament. He's equating them to each other. He's not making a distinction. He's saying these are both scripture. Um, and uh, yeah, then the second one, this one I think is even cooler. In 2 Peter 3, verse 15 to 16, and I've shortened it because it's long. Um, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here we have Peter referring to Paul's letters. Note, not one letter, letters. So multiple letters. And he says that people are twisting them as they do other scriptures. Meaning Peter, who was an apostle, or one of the original 12, is looking at Paul's letters while Paul is still alive, while he is still alive and saying, this is scripture. This is the word of God, right? That's, that's big. Here's another thing that's big in this statement. He doesn't try proof that point. The way he says it is matter of fact. He's not trying to prove to people that Paul's letters are scripture. The way he says it, it's as if he's writing to an audience that already believes that, right? So that means in general, the church already believed Paul's letters were scripture, right? That's big. We're talking while apostles were still alive, the church already had documents they believed were the word of God. Um, the second one, um, the, the second time frame is very soon after that, the early church fathers quoted various New Testament books as scripture. And this ranges from while some apostles were still alive onwards. Uh, <clears throat> they, uh, they quote multiple New Testament documents. We'll go into more detail about it later. Um, the first example is uh, First Clement. He is the, or it is the first known non-biblical Christian document uh, from the year uh, around about 96. So, and we know that, um, John wrote his gospel in the 90s. So already then, within a few years of each other, this guy Clement is um, constantly quoting scripture organically, naturally. Not trying to prove it's scripture, just organically quoting it. He quotes the gospels, Acts, 1 Corinthians, Philippians, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, James. And he quotes them about as much as he does the Old Testament inside his letter. That's big. 
right? That's, that's a lot of books of the New Testament already quoted as scripture by an early church father before 100 AD, okay? Probably while John was still alive himself, if not a few years after John died. Um, and then there's a quote from 2 Clement 2 verse 4, and it says, and another scripture says, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is a, ver a verse taken out of 2 Clement, and he says, another scripture says, and then he quotes Mark 2 verse 7. So in his own document, he's referring to something Mark wrote and saying it's scripture. And this is first century, some apostles still alive, early, early church. So most New Testament documents were recognized as authoritative, even scripture, as early as the end of the first, or at least by the end of the second century. So in other words, the end of the before 100, and then max, the latest, just before 200, right? And so I made a wonderful um, timeline, which some of you cheated and looked on Facebook. I didn't think you'd go on Facebook so early in the morning. But I'm very proud of it. This one probably took me two hours to do. But it looks so professional. I love it. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm prideful. But, um, so this is a summary. I figured it would be better to see it than for me to try and explain it. Okay. So generally by 400, it's over. Like people have accepted what the New Testament is. There's not much debate. I mean, there's always going to be someone who's arguing, right? People are still arguing today. But generally, it's over, right? So what happened in the meantime? So at about 33-ish AD, Jesus dies, okay? And from that point until just before 100 AD, the New Testament is still being written. The New Testament that we consider the New Testament is still being written. The Gospels, the letters, etc. okay? During that time, while it's still being written, as we've just mentioned, already some New Testament documents are being called scripture by the apostles, okay? And then from just before 180 onwards, the early church fathers quote the entire New Testament, right? So every single book of the New Testament is quoted by church fathers. Not all the same guy, but if you take all of them together, all the books are quoted, except Third John. That's the only one in the early church fathers we don't find a quotation from. If you've ever read Third John, you'll probably know why no one quoted from it. Doesn't really have any information. <laughs> um, so during that time, so just before, uh, so the late uh, second century, already in this time frame, from about just before 100 to late second century, Anywhere from 20 to 22 of all the New Testament books were already um, solidified as scripture, okay? Uh, there were five or seven, depending on which list you were looking at, that were generally accepted as scripture, but there was a little bit of dispute about them. But 20 to 22 out of 27 of our books that we have today were already solidified People weren't arguing with them. They were in basically every list used in every church. Um, then here in the late second century, uh, this is something of note. People love referencing this. 
is something that was discovered called the Muratorian Canon, which was written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it. And he was composing a defense of the New Testament. So remember we said there were heresies forming and people making their own books and stuff. So he wrote a defense of the New Testament, which is big because that's already saying there was a belief that there are these group of books that are widely accepted and so widely accepted that when someone wants to come against it, there's already someone who will say, mm, I'm going to write a defense to prove it, right? So he goes and he lists out uh, the New Testament books and he lists 22 out of the 27 that we have. Um, and those are the four gospels, Acts, the 13 Pauline letters, uh, two, maybe third John. So the reason I say maybe three is because um, in some writings, second and third John were one thing. So that's why maybe three, because we don't know if he's quoting from the, the compilation or uh, as a separate text. And uh, Jude and Revelation. So 22 out of the 27 books were in just this list, this defense, right? And that's before the end of the second century. Then over the next 200 years, people continue to argue over the last five to seven disputed books. Now, when I say disputed, I don't mean people were worried that these were super dodgy, right? It was most people believed them to be true, but there were some that had a few doubts. And so they continued to talk among themselves about these same books, James, Second Peter, uh, some people, second to third John, uh, Jude and Revelation. And some people also did Hebrews. We'll speak more about that in a second. So what about the other gospels, right? I'm sure you've heard gospel of Mary, gospel of Thomas, gospel of this important person apparently. Um, and I found Eusebius's uh, criteria very useful. So we're gonna look at his stuff. Uh, this is a guy in the fourth century and he wrote a list of multiple writings that existed at that point and he classified them into four categories. And I think these categories are very useful for us as Christians to determine like where we stand on these other writings. So the first one is um, he called homologumina, which is basically meaning it's universally agreed upon. Everyone knows this is scripture. No one's debating it. It is what it is. This defines the canon. Uh, there's little to no contention. And by little, it literally means fringe people, crazies, right? Um, then there's antilegumina, which is, there's a little debate, but it's mostly accepted as scripture. Then there's spurious documents. Um, these were things that were read in churches, and some of those churches um, thought they were canonical, but most of Christianity doubted that they were canonical. So they doubted that this was the word of God. Um, people agreed that they were good for reading, even in churches, like you could read them in a church. The same way we might quote an author from a Christian book today in a church, that's not like not allowed, you can do that, right? Uh, they're great for history and for ethical studies, but they're not the word of God. And then his last section was heretical writings. So these were totally excluded from canon. Don't consider them the word of God. They're absurd, they're impious, heretical, crazy, and they're against orthodox and universal church teachings, okay? So there are so many of these fringe documents that I can't go through them all, but I took the most common ones and um, 
uh, took his actual list. So then he went and listed out in each of these four categories, gospels. And so I've uh, displayed those for you in the next slide and then added a few that uh, are mentioned in other writings and placed them in the same categories because they're names that you will know. Okay, so this is a target. So the closer you are to the bullseye, the more accurate you are, the more likely to be the word of God. So in the middle, which is the homologous category, so everyone accepts it, we have the four Gospels, John, 1 John, uh, Acts, the 13 letters of Paul, the first letter of Peter, and Hebrews and Revelation. The reason it has um, little asterisks next to it is because there were a few people that were a little uncertain about Hebrews and Revelation. Two reasons that I know of is um, Hebrews, to this day, no one knows the author. And that made the early church a little uncomfortable because apostolicity was important to them. But many people accepted it in this first category because it conformed to the others. It was early. It conformed to church teachings. It was used in multiple churches across um, the, the, the empire in, in the first century. And so that's the reason there was a little contention. Eh, we don't know who wrote it, but everything else conformed. And so that's why it's kind of like teetering between the middle bullseye section and then the outer ring over here. Okay. Um, then Revelation. The reason why some people were a little eh, about that is it's a crazy book, right? And some people were like, whoa, we don't know about this. Okay. Some people didn't like what it said. Um, I didn't listen to a, a long teaching on it, but I heard someone kind of mention that there were a group of people that seemed to think that it implied that some people wouldn't be part of the thousand year reign with Christ, right? Like Christians, but they wouldn't be part of that reign. And they didn't like that. So they wanted to, they were like, I don't know if this book is, is scripture, but most people accepted it as scripture. But even if it wasn't 100% solid, it always fell at the minimum into the second category. So the second category, this pinky brown color, um, these are books that there was a little more debate over them. Most people accepted them as scripture, but they weren't as solid as the middle section. And that's James, Jude, 2 Peter, um, and 2nd and 3rd John. And then of course, Hebrews and Revelation that fall into that category as well. So depending on what lists you look at, you might see some people who have these solid ones. And then one guy will quote um, second and third John in the middle of the target. Another guy will quote Jude in the middle of the target. So that's also why these ones enter the second ring is because, I mean, if you ask us sitting here what we had for lunch, right? If every one of us says pizza, Ashley says pizza and Coke. You say pizza and Coke. I say pizza and Pepsi. And she doesn't say anything. The middle target will say pizza. And then we'll kind of like, oh, it was Coke, maybe. Which one was it? You know what I'm saying? Because not everyone said it, it was put in a second section. But it was super solid. And lots of people said it was scripture. So that's why it's not going outside of the ring. So everything in the first two circles is considered scripture by the early church. Then we have the spurious ring on the outside. 
And these are things which are considered important, good, ethical. You can even read them in a church or great for history, um, possibly written by great Christians, right? But they're not the word of God, okay? Um, so we have Epistle of Barnabas. Note Epistle of Barnabas. There's also a Gospel of Barnabas, but that one is, is nonsense, okay? So Epistle of Barnabas, Apocalypse of Peter, Oh, four o'clock in the morning. Didache, I think I'm saying that right. Shepherd of Hermas, Acts of Paul, and the Epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. Um, again, there are some people that might put one or two books in here that aren't, but these never enter here. And very few of these get thrown out as heresy. There are a few that go from heresy to this one and this one to heresy, but these don't ever enter the inner two rings ever, right? Okay. Um, then you have the fourth one, which is nonsense, heresy, crazy. Usually if it starts with gospel of, and it's not the four we know, you can accept that it's probably a crazy person and they're writing a bunch of lies. Um, some of the most common ones are gospel of Peter, gospel of Mary, gospel of Philip, gospel of Thomas, Acts of John, Acts of Andrew and the Gospel of Matthias. So I put a asterisk next to Gospel of Thomas because that's one of the ones that some people say is spurious. So you can read it for fun. It's not that bad. And other people are like, no, it's crazy. Um, he does say some crazy things in there. Um, he's a little bit Gnostic. So he says some weird mystical things that some people are like, eh, don't even look at it, right? Um, I will make a note here and say, uh, if you're interested in reading this stuff, read it. Like, but I want you to keep in your mind that when you're reading anything in the trash can or anything classified in the trash can, keep that in mind. Don't let that impact how you think about things in the two inner rings, right? If, if, if Mary says something crazy in her gospel, which is, by the way, highly unlikely, women in the first century didn't write books that got circulated, okay? Uh, if she says something crazy that contradicts something that's said in, in the Gospels, you don't go, oh, oh my word, Mary said something different to, to uh, John. So I don't know if John is legitimate. No, remember, this is a different category. Think of it as fictional writing. That's how you're going to take it, right? Then if you read anything that's spurious, at least they're not crazy. But again, it's not the word of God. So read it, read it just how you would read a Christian book today that you buy in the bookstore, right? I'm reading it for fun, but I know that these people can be wrong. So if they say anything that contradicts scripture, you go, oh, well, he was wrong on that point. But, you know, he said some good stuff. You know, if you're a person who's easily influenced by really dodgy things, do not read anything in the trash can. Like, if you're easily influenced, just stay away. Like, there's this danger zone over here because you might be easily corrupted, right? Paul speaks about protecting weaker Christians. Like there's certain things don't even talk about with weaker Christians because you actually make them sin if you have to bring up those things. So if you feel like you're a person who's easily influenced or confused, don't read the stuff in the trash can. You can probably still read the stuff in the outer ring of the target, but just remember it's not the word of God, but it's it's like Christian writings and it's good for fun. Right? So what made those be in the trash can? Like I know that they're crazy, but like, yeah, we're going to actually oh, go okay. into that. Yeah. Okay. 
Good, good question. Just kidding. Uh, I, obviously, each of them has different reasons. Right. I'm just going to give a, a bit of a general thing right now. Um, oh, no, never mind. I didn't make a slide for it, but it's in my notes. Um, so the first thing is that the manuscript evidence for non-canonical writing, so that ranges from the brown circle to the trash can, um, is very little compared to the New Testament. So for example, the Gospel of Thomas has only one whole manuscript. So it's only existed one complete uh, document one time and three fragments that have been found. That's it. The Gospel of Peter only exists in three fragments. That's all we have, three fragments. Um, there's another one that I didn't put up here called the Gospel of Hebrews. It only exists in quotations. We don't even have a manuscript for those. We just have other people quoting, oh, the gospel of this says this, right? And remember, from all the other stuff that we've done through historical evaluation and criteria, that's how we judge historical documents, right? So just on volume alone, most of these are excluded because there just isn't enough evidence to support that they were important, right? And that shows you the mindset of early Christians, okay? If they valued these as important than the word of God, they would have copied and preserved them the same way they did the homologuminous and antilegumenous categories, right? They would have really made a huge effort to preserve them, risking their lives to do so, but they didn't. And that's why we have so little today is because they just don't matter. Skeptics make it sound like, oh, you guys don't like what the Gospel of Mary says. That's why you don't want to include it. And we're like, mm, the early church didn't like it either, which is why they never copied it, right? Um, uh, let me see what else I have said here. Yeah, so... The, these ones in the brown section, the spurious documents, they will have usually more manuscript evidence than these, right? Because it's like Christian books today. If they're good, they're still in production. Like 100 years later, people still keep printing them. But they're not going to be, they're not 5,000 manuscript evidence as we have for the, the New Testament. But you can just see from volume alone the value that the New Testament Christians placed on these different documents. Um, second thing is uh, dating. Many of these gospels in the trash can were written in the 200s or 300s. Right. So, so they weren't. So people think that they weren't actually written by the people that they're said no. to be. Okay. That's, yeah. That was like, well, John was an apostle. So like, yeah. why is So that's what would happen is these, these off breaks of the Christian faith would have these crazy writings and to add validity to them, they would just paste. Uh, they just say, hi, John. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so crazy if you think about it, because if you remember when we were doing the gospels, what did we know about the gospels? They were all anonymous. Mm -hmm. The original writers never put their names on them, but then the fake ones to add validity, go and put the names of those people on them. Right. Interesting side fact. Um, Another thing is that even, even if you look at the earlier writings in this trash can, we never, ever, ever, ever have found a non-canonical gospel 
bound with a canonical one. So we have lots of, uh, of occurrences where we have John and Luke together, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John together, or Matthew and John, you know what I'm saying? We find that all the time, ancient documents, they're compiled together, written together in the same binding, in the same book, in the same letter, on the same codex. Never, ever, ever have we ever found one of those gospels bound with one of the others. There's never a Luke Matthias or John Philip combination. They're always on their own, which again says to you that the early church identified the four gospels that we have as the word of God and equal to each other, which is why they would combine them together, send them out together. But these were never considered canonical, so they're thrown out. And then also, although I can't go into each one and explain to you why, they didn't meet the four criteria that we discussed earlier. So they look at apostolicity, um, uh, the, the age, uh, if it's used in churches universally, does it conform to the teachings? Remember, you have to make it through most, if not all of that criteria to be considered canon. And so they failed most, if not all those categories. And so they were thrown out, right? And then I'm not going to go into a long thing on the Old Testament Apocrypha. It's literally just one slide because that's a whole nother ball game because those writings were collected over a long period of time. Um, and so also there's different types of Apocrypha. So there's, there's just, as there is with the New Testament, there's a lot of things that claim to be scripture, even from back in the day, right? Um, but from those books, there are some that everyone in Christianity and Jews has taken and cut it off and said, that is nonsense, right? So we're not even talking about those, okay? We're going to only talk about for a few seconds, the ones that some Jewish people accepted, at least for a time, and that like the Catholic Church today still has in their Bibles, okay? And we're going to say why we, we don't accept them as scripture. Okay. There is no reference ever to an apocryphal writing by Jesus or any of the apostles. They constantly refer back to the Old Testament and writings in the New Testament. There's not one quotation from the apocrypha ever. Okay. Um, so there was a guy named Jerome who um, was tossed with translating the Hebrew books of the Old Testament um, into Latin. So at the time of Jesus, there was a Greek translation, I believe it was called the Septuagint, and it contained the Apocrypha in that translation. That doesn't mean that it was accepted as scripture, it just was in that translation. And he was tasked with um, making it Latin, but he didn't want to go to the Greek one and translate that into Latin. He went and found the original Hebrew scripts and then translated that into Latin. He did include the Apocrypha, so he translated them and he put them in his work. But when he did so, he made a note and he said, these books are not scriptural, okay? They also don't fit in with the Messianic story. If you read the Old Testament, the whole theme from beginning to end is one thing. Men fell and God has trying, been trying to redeem it 
since the beginning. The whole picture of the Old Testament is looking forward to a savior, a Messiah, someone who will stop Israel from falling away from God over and over. Someone who will pay for the sins of Israel, right? And then the New Testament fulfills that story. The Apocrypha, they're kind of like on the side. They don't really talk about that stuff. They talk about history. They talk about the political atmosphere of the Jewish nation. Some of them are fanciful, fictional sounding stories even. And so they don't fit in with the narrative of the Old Testament. Um, no set of early Christians ever got together to affirm these books. There, we've already discussed how everything that was even debated, people would come together and be like, okay, are we accepting this, rejecting it? Does it meet criteria? No one ever did with the Apocrypha. They were just, it was just unanimously rejected by the early Christian church. No one considered it to be scripture. Um, the first time that ever happened was I think in the 1500s because the Catholic church was upset that the, um, the Lutherans had eliminated the Apocrypha. And so they then had a council for the first time ever to be like, yes, the Apocrypha is canon, it is scripture, okay? But until then, no one had gotten together to discuss that. Um, the Apocrypha contain clear historical errors. So there are big historical errors in the documents and we, we know as Christians, the word of God is infallible, it's accurate. Time proves it to be true, but time has proved those documents to be historically false, okay? Um, the Jewish people today would do not consider the Apocrypha to be scriptural themselves. They might read it as we do the spurious books that don't consider it to be scriptural. In fact, if I remember correctly, but again, four o'clock in the morning, my mind maybe wasn't so great. I think in about 400 AD, the Jewish people had decided, come together and decided that they were completely eliminating Apocrypha from their collection of writings of the Old Testament. So they, when they had their book, they're like, okay, we're taking out the Apocrypha. It's not scriptural. And it's not like that's the first time they came to that conclusion. They generally didn't believe it. It, it only started being uh, written mainly after, some of them earlier, but mainly after our last book, so Malachi. So in that 400 year gap between where we have nothing in our Old Testament and when Jesus came, most of them are written in that gap, right? So there's no like prophetic writing or revelation from God. And so most of them already had closed their canon by then and were, except the ones that are expecting a New Testament canon to be formed, right? Mm -hmm. But in that gap, somewhere in there, when someone made a Greek translation, they translated these other documents and put them together in this one thing. But that's not enough to say that the Jewish people as a whole considered these things to be scriptural. If you look at ancient Jewish writings from the first century, you'll find that most did not consider them to be scriptural, though they considered it to be good, right? So conclusion is you're, you're okay to read those books just as we can read the letter of first Clement, the shepherd of Hermes and all those other spurious books. But remember it's not scriptural, but it is great for history. Um, if you're in here, you can see my Hanukkah decorations. Hanukkah is recorded in Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal books. It records the history of the Jewish people during that time frame. So it's okay to read. Um, I actually found out last night, a lot of Christian hymns that we sing um, actually come from the Apocrypha. Like some of them are literal word for word because a lot of the writings in there are like poems and songs to God and stuff like that. So they're not bad for you to read, but don't base your theology 
on them, okay? And this is my last slide. I decided to do this in a slide instead of um, making a whole Saturday for this, just to save some time. And uh, I hope it satisfies you. If not, do your own research. How can we know that scripture is inspired by God, right? So even if we're looking at the Old Testament, just in general, just because something was written by the apostles or just because human beings expected it to be the word of God, how can we know that it really is the word of God and not just great historical and ethical documents. The first point is prophecy. Prophecy is a great way of proving that the Bible is the word of God because only God knows the future. So every time a prophecy is recorded, especially in the Old Testament, and then is fulfilled either in the Old Testament hundreds of years later or within the New Testament times or within our times, it's constantly proving that prophecy is the word of God, which is written in the Bible. So the Bible is the word of God. Um, I'm not going to go into it here, but there is a section in Daniel that where there's a prophecy. And um, first, it's a, I think it's a vision an angel gives him. I'm so sorry if I'm wrong. But it's very like metaphorical and has images and pictures. And at first, it kind of doesn't make sense although you kind of get an idea of where it's going. Um, and then I think Daniel asks for an interpretation or something, and then the angel explains it. And then he says specifically what each of those things means. And he says, um, there will be a, a, a leader who rises out from Greece, and then this happens. And then that kingdom will be broken down into four sub-kingdoms. It's so detailed that it's scary. And guess why? I think 400 years later, it happened with Alexander the Great taking over most of the empire, him dying, his empire being divided into four sub-kingdoms. And then it specifically says, this kingdom will do this, this will do this. It's scary accurate in Daniel. Like, it's amazing. Like, oh, one day we can freak out together over it. But very good. Um, obviously, the prophecies about Jesus fulfilled. There's a prophecy about Israel becoming a nation, which was only fulfilled um, in the 1900s. Yeah. 47. 40, ooh, look at you, Ashley. <laughs> 1947. That one took more than 2,000 years to come about, but it still was proved true. The next, <clears throat> Jesus's divinity makes his words naturally inspired in the word of God. The way we can know he's divine is if the historical records are true, which like I was telling you guys this morning, we might do in another session. But if he really did rise from the dead himself, that makes him God, I'm really dumbing it down. And if he's God, then everything he said was true, which makes everything we recorded of what he said, the word of God, because he was God, right? He was 48, close enough. In Jewish years, it might've been one more or one less because their calendar's different. <laughs> um, next Jesus gave his apostles special authority to speak his words First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as a human word but as it actually is the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 8 Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction of ours does not reject a human being, but God, 
the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Luke 10 verse 16, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. I won't read the rest. So um, scripture affirms this, but Jesus gave his apostles authority to speak on his behalf. And so naturally their words are considered the words of God. And then my last point is Jesus quoted and affirmed uh, the Old Testament as God's word, right? And think about it. If Jesus really was God and he came to earth, and at that time, there were a group of books that people were using and saying, this is the word of God. If they were wrong, it would have been a great opportunity for him to fix that. But he didn't. Which means that he himself considered the Old Testament to be the word of God, his own words, right? He didn't correct that. And he would have. We know Jesus. He would have corrected it, right? So that's how we can know very dumbed down that scripture is the word of God. And sorry if that's not satisfying some of you because it was supposed to be a whole nother week session, but I was trying to save time. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, Troy, you close for us in prayer, please. It's amazing. Okay. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for bringing us together for uh, another day and waking us up this morning and um, fellowship. And thanks for um, providing us with more information in order to uh, help win souls. And, um, we just pray that everybody remains protected during the holidays and if they have to travel that they make their destinations and that they make it back safely and um may everybody have a blessed day Amen. one more thing before you leave uh, i just want to make a recommendation if uh you guys like this stuff then there's a podcast it's really great so if you kind of like it but you're not willing to dedicate many 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 hours of your time to it um, there's a podcast called um, The Canonization of the New Testament by Reformed Theological Seminary. It is um, four lectures long, uh, just less than an hour each. And he covers like all this stuff. And it's really, really good. Um, and then if you're like super nerd, like you're like, oh, I can't get enough of this stuff. I cannot recommend more. Um, it's also by Reformed Theological Seminary and it's History One and History Two. So it's literally just them recording their seminary lectures, but it's so good. Like it takes you from Jesus's death, the history of the church all the way through to like think somewhere in the 1800s in detail what happened what caused what it covers canon stuff but it covers so much more and all the heresies and cults and then this cult did this and how did the church respond and this is how we got this doctrine and it's actually really fun to hear that history because you never ever get taught it and you never hear about it um like you know how uh, catholics have confession mm -hmm. and today we consider that 
super dodgy, only Jesus can forgive sins. You listen to history, you actually find out where that started. And actually how it started was not evil or bad at all. Like it just over time, then got twisted and perverted into this now thing that's totally heretical and evil, but huh? <laughs> but it's it's a really cool, really cool stuff. So I really recommend that. I would listen to one episode every day when I drove to work. And it's really great. History one and then history two by Reformed Theological Seminary. It's on Apple Podcast. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.